0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 471 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, August 4th, 2017, and this week we're going to flash back to a couple of shows we did with IAQ Pioneer and the first IAQA, Indoor Air Quality Association president, Larry Robertson. Larry has unfortunately passed since our last show with him, and we put two shows together to honor his memory. Uh, John, you got to have faith that I went back through the shows from February 11th, 2011. And 215 2013, we had Larry on. We cleaned them up the best we could. The early one had a little rough audio on it, but we cleaned it up the best we could. And in memory of Larry, here is what we came up with. Before we get started, let's thank our Marquee sponsors.
0: IAQ Radio Marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
1: Larry Robertson was the Indoor Air Quality Association's first president and a founding board member, and has been a leader in indoor air quality research and services for over two decades. He is known for establishing Mycotech Biological, one of the first environmental laboratories that specialized in identification of fungi and their association with HVAC systems. He also contributed in the initial development of the Certified Indoor Environmentalist and Certified Microbial Remediation Programs at their inception back in the early days with the Indoor Air Quality Association. And he served on the Texas Mold Task Force relative to the development of mold regulations in the state of Texas. He is also co-founder of Indoor Environmental Consultants, Home Diagnostics, Purisys 1, Pierce's 2, LARO, and Microfungi Inc and the Aeromycological Society of America. He has divested from all these entities and formed the Robertson Environmental Consulting Group to provide consulting and indoor environmental services through a network of consultants and remediators across the country.
2: What I call the the mold wars in Texas, Uh, it was an incredible four-year period where it was pretty much started with the, uh, the notoriety that the Melinda Ballard case had. Uh, and it spawned itself into just thousands of mold cases, uh, primarily homeowners filing against their home insurance carriers uh, relative to water damage and mold claims. Some of these other cases were outside of the state, uh, but most of them were here locally and dealing with uh, homeowners insurance.
1: So these were cases that I'm I'm assuming were filed prior to homeowners insurance writing the policies in a way where they excluded mold coverage or at least capped it yes okay so you were just cleaning up the the uh, big backlog of uh, lawsuits that occurred in the early 2000 and uh, area I guess yes and it,
2: it actually even though that uh, the insurance companies began to rewrite their policies um it wasn't really until uh, there was a case that went to the supreme court here in texas that uh that ruled in favor of the insurance companies that removed any um, secondary mold from water damage Uh, basically even if you had if a homeowner had a covered event if it grew mold intuitively you would think that uh, that would be part of the damage and it would be covered but the Supreme Court here in Texas did not see it that way. And pretty much that lawsuit that uh, laid everything to rest uh, with regard to litigation and mold. Now, there there are still some cases that are are going around. I mean, there are certainly plenty of ways that uh, people can get sued or businesses can get sued for mold, but it's just, it's not the old standard homeowner's uh, insurance case.
1: I see. Okay.
3: Cliff? I I guess it's a two-part question, Larry. Was Texas the first state that got involved with licensing mold contractors?
2: I believe it was, Cliff.
3: Okay. And what effect did this mold licensing regulation have on the quality of the work being done in Texas? Did it stay the same? Did it get better? Did it deteriorate?
2: Uh well that's that's a that's a difficult question. I, I I would have to say it's a little of both.
1: There there was a, a recent study published in In the Air, uh, that you know, it essentially concluded that there was no compelling scientific evidence that exists about an association between air duct cleaning and improved IEQ. And I guess that's my summary on it, but others may argue but you know, we can talk about that. One of the papers cited, you know, was a paper that you had published. And I'm curious um, if you've had a chance to look that over and what your thoughts are on that study and how they represented what you had published within that study.
2: Now, I, I have some very mixed opinions about that. Uh, the Sarami paper. That's the one you're referring to. Uh, uh, I mean, on one hand, with, with some exceptions, the basic... I mean, the very basic conclusions provided in the paper are valid. However, the context to which the conclusions are based are, in my opinion, so very, very narrow and limited. For example, the paper does state that no field studies have correlated poor IEQ with the contamination. It says that in that abstract. And clearly, to offer fields, it's appropriate to make such a statement, but that's True only if it's limited to the contamination of the duct only and not the entire HVAC system as a whole. I mean, the term bioaerosol was coined in the infamous Legionnaires' disease case, which involved an air conditioning system in Philadelphia back in the 1970s. Clearly, I mean that's one of the most well-established cases where a field study report uh, where poor IAQ and health effects were directly correlated to an HVAC system. Yet. Uh, I, I get my, my opinion is the author doesn't even recognize that. And I feel that it's grossly misleading to the audience in which that paper was intended. And specifically the uh, I was involved in several uh, studies uh, involving uh, gut cleaning back in the late 80s and 90s that demonstrated positive impact of HVAC sanitation uh, on improved IQ. One of those papers was the Annals of Allergy, the one that you had mentioned earlier. And that paper concluded that uh, it may be an effective tool uh, in reducing airborne fungal populations in residential environments. And the only reason we use the word may is because uh, we wanted to make certain that it, it had to specifically do with the quality of the work that was being done in other words to make certain that the containment and capture systems were there in this process that not all duct cleaning uh, methods work but certainly some of them do that's the. we did another study that uh, actually it was uh, the ahmad study it's the first the first uh, reference that's in the Zerami paper uh, in which we we had the basic same results in that in that study as well so Clearly, there are at least two references in the Zerami paper that say that there can be a positive impact on IAQ if these methods are done appropriately. However, it's not recognized in uh, in Zerami's conclusion. Now, if he's only saying, "Well, we're only going to be looking at ventilation duct systems," well, then. See, we were looking at the entire systems, but it's, it doesn't really make... I think it's misleading to only look at a ventilation duct system and not the entire system in itself. It, it's, it's almost counterintuitive. For example, uh, we all know that basic household cleaning and maintenance is an important component of IAQ, but there's no specific study that correlates cleaning of a house Improved IAQ, but we know it is. Now we could liken this study to by saying there's no evidence that vacuuming the master bedroom in a in a residential uh, environment has any positive impact on IAQ. We know that vacuuming the resident or the master bedroom is only one small part of the total cleaning effort that must be put into place to improve IAQ. And that's sort of the the focus. I believe that this study took. It was so limited in its scope that it did not include the entire dynamics of the HVAC system. And there are studies that show that there is an improvement in IAQ or the reduction of these fungal bioaerosols, which vis-à-vis is an improvement in terms of IAQ relative to exposure. And those studies are documented. So I don't know why this... uh, the study concludes that uh, there is no effect other than the fact that he may have only been looking at the duct itself.
1: Well, Larry, let me go back to those early days because I I wasn't as involved as you were. I was doing asbestos and lead and um, safety, you know, construction safety training and, and working with hazardous waste, etc. I, uh, first of all, for you, what were the early days? What what years are we talking about?
2: Well, uh, I mean, ACGIH had uh, specifics on doing indoor outdoor comparisons uh, in the mid eighties. So, uh, and I don't I, that's really, in my opinion, about when the industry began to take take hold.
1: Okay. And you started doing a lot of work in the industry, and, and it became, you know, we had the mold courses and the CMR the early days, the indoor environmentalist. What year were we talking about there?
2: Well, yeah, those aren't really the early days for me. I guess those, those are more like they were developed in the 90s. In the,
1: in the mid to late 90s, right, I believe that would be
2: about As, right. I mean, when we were doing this type of work in the 80s, uh, there weren't a lot of people doing it. and we were, we were plowing new ground at that point. Uh, but then, again, I think that it was primarily driven, number one at that time, by just the individuals who were doing the work for wanted some kind of clear, definitive statement on project closure. And then from that, liability began to uh, interface in with all of the work. And so that's really when it became more than just a visual observation. There had to be some kind of test involved. And eventually in the state of Texas, uh, it actually became a regulation where uh, the post-remedial testing had to had to occur. It had to involve some type of accepted national method.
1: Now, back in those early days, I would assume you were doing a lot of culturable-type sampling. I don't know that the spore traps were as uh, common and, and tape-lift, but maybe I'm wrong. Were you doing tape-lift as well, or... Uh, uh,
2: oh. Yes, I mean actually, those those techniques are really common in mycological circles. Now, the the spore trap method uh, that used a cassette was certainly something that developed later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those early days, uh, heck, we were using what was called a Burkhardt impact sampler. Uh, uh, the Burkhardt company uh, essentially had the very first. A spore trap, uh, volumetric spore trap sampler, patented and developed, and essentially you would use a microscope slide. Now that that whole process evolved, has evolved to using uh, these cassettes that have small microscopic slides in them that are that are utilized in lieu of the standard microscope slide.
1: And as far as uh, culturable sampling, were you doing a lot of culturable sampling back in those days as well? Yes. Doing both. Okay. Okay. Now let's, let's move fast forward up to the, I guess the, the 99, I want to say is when the addition of the bioaerosols I'm for more, more familiar with came out. And also when in 2001, EPA came out with mold in schools and commercial buildings. And both of them had indoor outdoor comparisons in them where you were looking at trying to get the levels within the containment similar to outdoors in the case of EPA. And I I don't remember the exact wording in the bioaerosols book. I could find it in a moment. But um, those were two of the documents. You mentioned some other – I don't know if you were referring to those or to other industry standards and guidelines. Can you mention a few of the others that have uh, have influenced what you do over the years? Well,
2: yes, I mean – it's wise to look at all of these uh, guidelines and, and and use them, have them in your bag of tricks, so to speak. But, uh, again, most of these documents walk right up to the concept of clearance, but they do not necessarily address the specifics of PRV. And w- one, for example, would be uh, the document that came out in uh 2003, which was the, the first uh, IICRC uh, S520 standard, mm-hmm. and uh, those that are familiar with that know that the IICRC uses uh, these terms, conditions 1, 2, and 3, and essentially uh, the, the goal of the mold remediation project is to return the environment to a condition 1, which essentially attempts to define what is typical and normal for an indoor environment. Now the problem is that there are documents that that are out there in the references and published literature that provide guidance on what is typical and normal. However, no one seems to be paying much attention to them. Uh, I'll just cite a few of them. in In 1996, there was an excellent paper that was put out by Rao, Burge, and Chang in the Journal of Air and Waste Management, in which there was a comprehensive review of quantitative standards and guidelines for fungi in indoor air. That's an excellent source. There's also a study done by Shelton, Brian Shelton there at PathCon, Kirkland, Flanders, and Morris, that did profiles of airborne fungi in buildings and in outdoor environments across the United States. That's a peer-reviewed publication in the Applied Environmental Microbiology. And another another good example is that you can get laboratory pocket reference guides that provide outdoor levels and ranges of specific organisms on a state-by-state basis. For example, in Texas, if, if I look at this uh, document for Texas, it indicates that for outdoor air, Stachybotrys levels are typical and common, that, that we we find them at, in low ranges of 7 spores per cubic meter, in a medium range of 13 spores per cubic meter, and they can also be high at about 130 spores per cubic meter with a frequency of 19%. So almost, almost one-fifth of the time they're occurring in outdoor air at those, at those concentrations, generally suggesting that people are routinely exposed to this, or, exposed to this organism on a day-to-day basis And yet many consultants fail a mold project based on the presence of a single spore of stachybotrys saying that that does not represent the condition one for IICRC. So in my opinion, the the information is out there to rein in a lot of these extremes, but they are just being ignored in a large part.
1: Can you give us? I know you've been doing a lot of research on the. Oh, first of all, I apologize, Cliff. Once again, I'm doing it, um, Cliff. Do you have a follow up or a question you wanted to? <laughs> give no, me no, no.
3: Mine are more catastrophic.
1: Okay. Okay. Questions. So while while we're at while we're oh, just go oh, ahead, Larry.
2: Before we go on, Joe, you mentioned on something uh, about the the indoor outdoor comparisons. Yes. And I'd really like to touch on that before we move off of that subject.
1: Let's, let's do that now, please do.
2: Uh, yeah, that question actually has, in my opinion, two important considerations. And first, let's just talk about the indoor-out comparison, uh, indoor-outdoor comparison. There's there's a known history of where that comes from. I believe it originates uh, from the ACGIH and some early early uh, publications on bioaerosols. And the rationale that they use is generally okay. It's it's only when we start applying that to a specific project where the problems really start to emerge. Here's a standard example of that problem. I'm going to give you an example of a failed clearance test in which a spore or trap was done and 1,000 spores per cubic meter of a typical mix of fungi, common fungi, were in the containment area and the outdoor level was 500 spores per cubic meter. Well, the indoor was Two times greater than the outdoors and so the consultant would fail the project based on a strict indoor-outdoor comparison. An example of a pass clearance test would be if the sampling was done and 1,000 spores per cubic meter of typical fungi were found in the indoors and 2,000 were found in the outdoors. Well there the outdoors is twice that of the indoors so the project fa- passes. But the problem is the indoor levels never changed. They were 1,000 spores per cubic meter in both examples. So why is it that we're failing? If 1,000 spores per cubic meter is good on one day, why isn't it good on another day? I think that goes into what's, a lot of this stuff of what's driving these remediators crazy. Research has demonstrated that around 2,000 spores per cubic meter is a, of a typical mix of fungi is typical and common for an indoor environment. So why why would we necessarily be failing anything below 2,000 considering the fact that they were typical and normal kinds of things? Does not that represent a condition one? But what I see in the industry and what's being used are criteria that are much more stringent than that. And obviously there are cases where we need more stringent criteria, but for common and routine types of mold projects. I'm not sure we do. I only use an outdoor sample for comparison if something is above what I consider to be typical and normal for an indoor environment. And I'm looking for an outdoor influence that could have potentially bias that. The other criteria that I feel that's important is this use of spore traps. Uh, Spore traps have been around a long time, and that methodology has its place. However, there has been some recent studies that has identified serious precision issues with regard to that particular method. I personally have become very hesitant about the reliability of that data in general. Several published studies exist on this, and I think we even talked about that about two years ago. I had a a presentation on that at the last IAQ conference. But consultants continue to use this method, I think, because it's essentially a quick and easy method for them to use, regardless of the fact that the data they obtain may be extremely poor. I know, I feel that the consultants know that this problem exists, but they are hesitant a way to move away from the method because primarily a lack of leadership in our industry. And that's where I hope that uh, we're going to be able to come together and make a move with regard to that. I personally have moved away from using spore traps on a routine basis, and when I do, I make certain that the laboratory provides me a precision statement on each sample that I send in. So I think it's a, for me, it's a hinge point. Do we continue using spore traps? In important uh, decision-making processes like PRV when we know that the data may be inherently unreliable.
1: Well, and going back to your earlier example, I mean, 500 spores inside or outside and 1,000 inside or outside, I don't care which way it is, I mean, 500 and 1,000, is there really that big of a difference between 500 and 1,000 when you look at the... Accuracy of the the type of um, uh, analysis that's going on out there.
2: Well, I mean, if you if you you would need to qualify that with uh, with uh, a typical mix of common fungal spores. Okay. Yep. yep. I mean, it's a common typical fungi. Uh, there 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 are researchers that say no that there's really not there's not a significant difference between those numbers. Now, in our industry we tend to say, well, there's 500, 1,000, 2,000, and so we look for statistical differences in those sets of data. But there are, ACGIH is one source that basically looks for orders of magnitude in difference. So uh, that's a a far cry from comparing 100 to 50, so to speak.
1: Okay. Let's let Cliff get in with a follow-up here.
2: Yeah, Larry, I'm trying to determine, what,
3: you know, you, 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 you talked back about, uh, I think, in the, in both in the 1980s and the 1990s, reference being made to compare indoor versus outdoor. But if, the out, if clearance indoor is based on what's going on outdoors, who came up with this, you know, comparison idea at the beginning, and, and why didn't they see the flaws in it?
2: Uh, heck Cliff, Cliff. I would have to say, uh, the, I believe it was the ACGIH that essentially came up with the indoor outcome, outdoor comparison, and I've seen it published in in, in other texts and research documents as well. As a, it's a simple kind of quick down and dirty as to measuring what's going on inside of a building with compared to outdoors. It's kind of like an outdoor standing standard. And the, and I think that's all it was meant to be, was a general out, just a general comparison. Where our industry has gone and evolved, we look at things much more detailed than they ever perceived 30 years ago. So I think and the flaw of the method is revealed only through the evolution of our industry and where we are now.
1: And Larry, you, you mentioned the total count, and, and I know that you will want to follow up. When I don't, we're going to run out of time. It's, it's just really tough. But you're talking about a normal mix of airborne fungi, okay? I know that I'd like to have you comment on the second level that a lot of consultants go to, which is not just a comparison of the total count, but a comparison of the mix of the types of fungi found find in the indoor environment versus the outdoor environment. And if you can't do it, if you want, I can go into after halftime because that may take a little longer.
2: Uh, well, clarify for me again. You're, you're, you want me to describe what it is a typical mix might be?
1: Or even your thoughts on that second level that people use oftentimes, which is they, they look at whether or not it is a typical mix and then base their clearance on that.
2: Again, there, there are documents, research documents, peer-reviewed publications on what's in non-damaged buildings, what's typical and normal. And uh, I, I know it, it ruffles a lot of people's feathers, but uh, Stachybotrys is common in outdoor air. Aspergillus versicolor is common in non-water-damaged buildings. And often those organisms are used as key indicators to suggest that something is wrong in the indoor environment. So we we have to be extremely careful about how we become focused on specific organisms as these key indicators.
1: Now what about using the organism being removed as a key indicator? Do you have any comment on that?
2: Well, being removed?
1: Right. So if you you look at a mold remediation project, you go in and the predominant contamination is, I don't know, cladosporium, aspergillus versicolor, or, or just aspergillus. What about using that as a, an indicator of whether or not the project has been cleaned properly or not?
2: Uh, yes. I mean, I think you can, but that's going to incorporate, I think you can look at the material and determine if it's been removed, if the growth has been removed. Uh, does a single spore of any one of these organisms that is uh, uh, residing as a residual agent on the surface of something in a containment system, does that necessarily represent a problem? I would have to say, I haven't seen evidence to say it does. I see where it's being used to represent that something has not been clean, but I don't inherently see where a single spore of let's say it was cladosporium, a a cladosporium growth on some sheetrock, and everything was cleaned up and somebody came back and found a single spore of cladosporium, I can't really say that in my mind's eye that that represents that the cleaning wasn't done appropriately because we can find single spores of cladosporium everywhere.
0: IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers, feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, WolfSense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, visit them at John John.com. That's J O N D O N dot com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
1: Let's get back to the second half of our interview with Larry Robertson. Larry, do we have you back on the line? Yes, I'm here. All right, great. Larry, before we broke, we were talking about indoor-outdoor comparisons, and I, I'd kind of like to move it over a little bit. The AIAJ and their green book came out with a recommendation or at least some guidance on doing dust sampling, essentially, at the end of a mold remediation project, and they weren't necessarily analyzing that dust for mold spores. They were just essentially weighing and matching you know, a clean area to a, a a non-cleaned area, or not even necessarily matching it, just giving us an idea of what a cleanliness standard is, what they called filth, and, and we're removing filth. I wonder if you have any comments on that.
2: Uh, well, I think, I mean, I understand the concept of what they're doing. is basically a, uh, it mirrors what the NADCA vacuum test is. Yes. the a pre-weight filter, or gravimetric kind of analysis, uh, so you, you know, you, Theoretically, if the surface is dirty, you pick it up and uh, it weighs a certain amount and somebody says, that, well, that amount means that it's bad. In terms of its application to a mold project, I don't see much wind in the sails there. Uh, it would take an incredible amount of mold spores just to get, get this thing to change one milligram in weight. So... One milligram wouldn't look like a lot uh, in terms of that measurement, but it could represent a lot of mold spores. So I don't see the functionality there really coming to play. Again, I think basically if you're looking to see that the, the mold growth is gone and that all surfaces are clean, you essentially do that, and that the testing really uh it, where, where I see the testing uh, being important is, are the concentrations in the air equivalent and typical, so you don't drop a containment system and essentially contaminate the rest of the building via air. And if you remove mm-hmm. the growth and you've cleaned all the surfaces, you've essentially accomplished that cleaning standard. Then it's a question of, is the air in that containment, is it back to a normal level so you can drop the con, uh, containment system and the project be concluded over. So that's where I see the, the testing is, is of most importance relative to, quote-unquote, mold. It's the airborne mold that's in the containment system. All right. So I hope I addressed that.
1: No, you did. I think you did a fine job on it. I, I... <laughs> It, it kind of mirrors, actually, a comment sent in by someone who will be joining us for the roundup, John Lapotere, who basically said post-remediation verification should ensure that the contained work area will have no negative impact on the surrounding unaffected uh, Condition 1 areas once the containment is removed and the contained and uncontained areas reach an indoor equilibrium. So I, I think you're pretty much saying the same thing.
2: I think so. Uh, I, I mean... Based on uh, based on my history of being able to do an inspection, make sure that the mold growth is gone, that's what we, essentially, that's where all the spores are coming from, a growth site, to make sure that's gone and whatever caused it has been corrected if possible. I mean, you obviously can't fix it if it was a hurricane or a flood, but you, you get my drift with that. And if you make sure that the, the growth is gone and the surfaces are clean, then it might mind's eye, you've essentially accomplished that remedial goal. And then what's left is you know that you disturbed a bunch of stuff when you were doing that and it's floating around in the air. And the measurement that I think is important is, is relative to that air. Now, that's, there's, there's two things that, that kind of that leads to is uh, do, what, what, what do we need on uh, – do we need PRV on all projects? It's kind of one of the baseline questions that that emerges. I mean, do we need to be doing this kind of testing on every mold project? And my response to that would be that to the degree that the job is done by a professional consultant or a professional remediator for hire. I mean, we're not talking about doing it at your house by yourself. But somebody that has a business and they deem themselves to be professional, I believe some type of PRV is recommended and should be done. And in some cases, that could be just a limited to a visual inspection. However, the problem is just doing that increases the liability, and it tends to push the PRV response to some type of sampling. And this is where I think we need to come together as an industry to determine what types of jobs require what types of PRV. For example, not too long ago, I recently recently solicited input on the IAQA LinkedIn website Mm -hmm. for consultants to submit some clearance criteria to me uh, and what they would use for routine and common mold projects. And you would not believe the responses. They were across the board. They ranged from, well, you really don't have to do anything for a routine site to, Mr. Robson, I can't even respond to your question because we always include bacteria, mite, beta-glucan, and a host of other sampling methods on all of our mold remediation projects. Hmm. Basically saying that they don't, they don't distinguish between routine and common mold projects in my opinion this is exactly one of the areas where we need to come together as an industry we need to we need PRV for routine and common projects and those might differ from what we need for ICUs and operating theaters and other critical care units so this is again a big area where i think where we we need some leadership and guidance need to come together as an industry to determine what our appropriate responses are going to be for
1: those categories. I've got a couple of texts I want to get to in a minute, but let me let me just kind of go through, Larry, what the typical components that I think maybe you're saying we should include on every PRV, and, and then let's take it from there. Obviously, we want to make sure the moisture problem has been fixed. I don't know whose responsibility that is all the time. Sometimes... It's the contractor, the owner ultimately is responsible for making sure the moisture problem has been fixed. And in some cases, like in New York City, when they issue citations, they require that an architect or a registered or a professional engineer sign off on that, which is pretty pretty stringent. Um, but that's obviously the baseline. And then you've been saying repeatedly, and I, I think everyone would agree a good thorough visual inspection to ensure that you have removed all of the visible mold. Uh, and any visible contamination, um, I have not. We have not mentioned. Oh, obviously, getting back to a dry standard of some type, ensuring that the materials have been dried to an appropriate standard, we have not mentioned olfactory or odor. And I wondered if you could comment on that for me.
2: Uh, I would. I would lump the olfactory, the odor situation, in with that visual inspection. Okay. And and in my mind's eye, when I do a visual inspection. It's more more of just a, a sensory inspection. I mean, I'm not just going in and looking. I'm I'm touching. I'm feeling. I'm smelling. So it's it's more of a sensory inspection.
1: Okay, and then some type of, of sampling. We've talked a lot about sampling, but I think before we get to to specific sampling, I want to add a. There's a question here. Do you use a particle counter to assist? Oh, you
2: actually, with this? Joe, that's it, for me the. The, the final process in the in the uh, clearance process is to take a sample. And yes, in the past I have used aerosols, but as I've mentioned, I have developed some real concerns with aerosols, and I am actually moving towards this concept of using particle counters in lieu of any kind of specific molds for sampling. Okay. Look, I look at it like this: we routinely use carbon dioxide as a surrogate to address appropriate ventilation in buildings. No one thinks anything about that. Carbon dioxide is really not the problem. It's the surrogate that lets us know whether or not we're getting the appropriate ventilations according to ASHRAE. I don't see any reason why we can't do something similar to that for mold using concentrations of one to five micron particle sizes as a surrogate to mold spores within a containment system and at least begin to incorporate something like that for routine and common mold remediation projects. Obviously that would be that would not be what I would limit my recommendations to in an ICU or a sensitive care facility. There, I might want to do culturable stuff. But in a routine and common situation where I know the problems that are existing with the current technology with aerosol, I'm feeling feeling the directive is to go to more of a laser particle counter and utilize just the raw numbers that exist between the 1 and 5 micron range as a surrogate to determine if the concentrations are appropriate to drop the clearance
1: barriers. Got it. And I think that's a great—I'm glad we got that question from John, and what we're going to follow up, and I'm going to let John do a couple follow-ups on that in our roundup, because he's got another one here. Before we go to the roundup, though, I want to get back to Cliff. Cliff, I know you had a couple questions, and I— I want to make sure you yeah,
3: I, I, I do, Larry. I mean, there's been so much uh, work uh, and so much need following Superstorm Sandy. I wanted to get your comments on practical and cost-effective epa- uh, cost post-remediation verification for post-catastrophic flood reme- remediation projects. What do you think about that?
2: Uh, well, obviously, there's a that's a, a lot going on when When a flood comes it's it's not like just a problem with under one sink. You've got a problem in the entire house. And I think my take on that is it would be become critical in those particular examples that, again, the visual inspection, be done to make certain that all of the water damaged materials have been removed. And then this aspect of... I'm be, I've been using uh, water concentration and I've tried to avoid using uh, of the word moisture meter. Moisture meters have their place. However, you really want to get down to, to the down and dirty to determine whether or not a material is going to support mold growth and the potential for that after a catastrophic flooding event, then you really need to be looking at water activities. And until recently, there has been a void of readily available equipment to get that. I'm happy to say now that there are companies now that are providing some rather low-cost equipment to enable the consultant to identify specific water activities of various building materials. That is what I would utilize to determine what the exact concentration of water is in that material and if it's going to result in a potential regrowth. If that's the critical issue for me in a, in a catastrophic event is how much water was received and is being held as a reservoir in those materials because you could simply clean them up, and if you didn't get that residual moisture out of the materials, the mold growth would recur. So using this water activity meter in conjunction with dryers and air movers, I think is critical importance, particularly in catastrophic events like that.
3: Okay, I've got one follow-up question. Larry, what's your opinion on the applicability of using ATP Sampling as a PRV tool for either mold or for both mold remediation and post-catastrophic flooding.
2: Well, ATP is is a method that's been around for a long time, uh, and I've and it's, it's used in clean rooms and in uh, surgical areas, and so it has a place. It has a place, whether. Whether or not I would use it as a a first choice, I'm not sure I would. It is less discriminant on fungi, per se, because it can also detect... Well, it can detect any microorganism that's producing adenosine triphosphate. Adenosine triphosphate is basically the energy molecule in living systems. So anything that's living is going to create ATP or produce ATP. And so it doesn't really identify fungi specifically. That would be one thing of why it may or may not be a good mold remediation tool. The other is that if you have a dead mold spore or a dead mold colony, there may not be any ATP there, but you still have all, all of the allergic kinds of things that are going on that the ATP method wouldn't necessarily pick up. You know, when I first saw it demonstrated, this was many years ago, this was probably the
3: the late 80s. And one of the, one of the things that happened is that, you know, we, we did it at our training center, and we'd had an area where we water damaged, and, you know, we ended up getting some uh, you know, numeric readings there. And I just wanted to see what would happen if we uh, tested various chemicals. And I actually tested a very, very strong iodine um, disinfectant. I mean, a very, very strong product. And you should have seen the readings that came out of that. And I know it was a product that was sterile. So, you know, I think in certain situations, ATP may, uh, there there may be reactions to things that are not necessarily living.
2: Uh, You mean like cross-reactions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I I wouldn't be able to discount that. Um, I'm sure that there are there are. There's also other meters out there that, uh, that are available that measure chitinase, which is a specific enzyme associated with fungi. I don't want to use the product name because I, uh, uh, that might be inappropriate, but there's a meter out there that measures chitinase, which is a specific enzyme to fungal organisms, which is a good tool. Uh, again, it's specific application to mold remediation, you know, I personally am looking... It may have a place. Let me finish the sentence by saying it may have a place. However, I'm looking for something in our industry that is going to simplify and gain credibility to our entire mold remediation process, the assessment and remediation events. So I'm looking for the method for common and routine projects where the consultants and remediators can come together and develop this. Certainly the ATP meters and the chitinase meters and all these other things exist, but I'm not sure that that's going to be the answer for everyone. I'm looking for, I'm going to be looking for something I think is more common, uh, like these particle counters. These things have come down in price tremendously, and I'm thinking that those might be something that we could get our consultants and remediators to gravitate to. It would be something that, number one, the remediators could actually have these as a tool in their bag. So when they're approaching the PRV, they, in fact, can take a test. Right, that's yeah, a lot. And, and know time. whether or not they're ready or they need to fix their air scrubbers or change their filters or run them longer or readjust them or whatever. And then if we have criteria that basically are, that the consultants can use to use the particle counters, again, as a surrogate for a mold air clearance, then it just, I know the labs are not going to like me like hearing me say this, but from a practical standpoint, that it just makes more sense as opposed to sending them off the, for, to a lab, they're analyzed, to come back with a myriad of data. If you send the cassette back to another lab, you'll get another set of results that may or may not match up. It just cr- creates a mess, and it, it doesn't really mean anything. If we can just get the particle levels down, and they're equivalent to what's outside or in the other parts of the residence, I'm thinking that ultimately serves as the overall objective.
1: so uh, thanks as always though we always appreciate having you on and and getting your final comments now larry before we go though we always like to give you the last word anything we missed or the, anything you'd like to add
2: Oh, uh, i appreciate being here today uh it's, this is a this is a great forum to discuss this important uh concept and uh and I appreciate hearing from John. I think John might be one of my, my big partners in uh, helping our industry take this step in trying to bring people together into some common sense methods. I mean, I, I, uh, a few years ago, I was in a court case, and I had an attorney sit down with me, and he says, you know, the one thing I really hate about your industry, and he, and he went through this, you know, you can sample one day, and you get this, and you compare it to the indoors, and then you sample again, and then... It's the same example I used earlier, and he, and he looked up from our lunch when we were having lunch, and he says, you know, y'all, are, y'all really have a credibility problem. That was 10 years ago. Hmm. We need to do something about this. We need, in an, As our industry, we need to fix this. We need to bring the consultants together. It's not going to be hard to do because every one of them has got a different idea, but we've got to do, as John suggested, distill this thing down, is something that the practitioner, a simple practitioner, can use out in the field for routine and common projects. That's where we begin. And then we we move up from there to determine what we need for sensitive kinds of environments. I like Joe, that. Cliff, thanks for having me. I appreciate oh, being on here. I hope to see you all in uh, Orlando.
1: Larry, uh... This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to Larry Robertson. Uh, I know you had a tough schedule this week. I really, really appreciate you uh, making room for us in your busy schedule. I look forward to seeing you, and maybe you and I and John can sit down for a drink or a meal uh, in Orlando uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, we really appreciate you joining us. I also want to thank... uh, Roxy V, Roxy V, good job on the engineering today. Sure, thanks, Joe. No glitches, of course. My co-host, the Z Man, Cliff. Thanks again. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Um, Cliff and I, by the way, will also be together at the Dampness Mold uh, Conference in March over in Atlantic City. Looking forward to that one. We're going to try and do a show live from there. Also want to thank John Lapotere. Thanks again for joining us John. Of course our technical director Dr. Dietrich Wow. Hey next week I just got confirmation I'm pretty sure we're going to have Sam Rashkin from the Department of Energy on next week. Used to be with uh, EPA's Energy Star program. They he's moved on over to DOE. They've got a fantastic new website I've been sending out as a part of my uh, show announcements every week. You've got to check it out. We're going to talk a lot of building science next week with Sam Rashkin, DOE. Um, also want to, f- of course, thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Real nice group of online people here this week, and downloads are great. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.